Welcome to the Sacred Body Podcast. My name is Stacey Ramsauer and I'm your host. This is an ongoing conversation about the sacred nature of embodiment and the path toward greater fulfillment as humans. We approach this conversation from the lens of birth, food, intimacy, sex, and much more. I hope you enjoy, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome everybody to the Sacred Body Podcast. I'm super excited to have Catherine Friedman here today, known on the social media world as Stumptown Sex Therapy. I've been following your work for maybe a year now, just saw it shared through our you know, mutual acquaintances, and I find your work, Catherine's work, to be extremely unique and important in the milieu of um, people sharing their ideas about sex and intimacy and self-expression. So I'm going to give you all a more formal um, sense of Catherine's work. She's a licensed professional counselor living and working in Portland, Oregon. She's also an intimacy consultant, sex and kink educator, and community organizer. She works with individuals in navigating histories of complex relational trauma, building strong identities, and discovering and expressing their sexual individuality. She also works with couples around issues of communication and sexuality, including alternative relationship, intimacy, and sexual styles. Her practice is grounded in principles of trauma-informed embodiment, mindfulness, sex positivity, and interpersonal growth. One of her passions is working with people around how issues of oppression and marginalization impact identity and sexualization. Her practice is LGBTQ welcoming, poly-friendly, and kink-fluent. That's my favorite part. <laughs> kink-fluent. <laughs> I stole that it's from my good. partner, Ray. I'm just going to credit him and give him a shout-out that that's the, a term he came up with, and I think it's so excellent. It's so yeah. excellent, and just for... Um, the audience will 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 get there in a moment, but I'd love for you to give some definitions of terms that we'll be working yeah, with in today's conversation. To. But first, Catherine, thank you for being here, and I'd love to thank hear you how you found your way to this specific realm of of mental health. I mean, it's yeah. it's honestly still a very rare thing that in the mental health realm, there's an emphasis on sexuality as a foundational component of that. Um, and so I'm just going to hand you the mic to talk a little bit okay. about how you landed where you did. So <clears throat> it really came out of my practice. I was more specifically focused. So I worked in, I worked in um, substance abuse for a really long time. Mm -hmm. I worked a lot with um, co-occurring trauma and substance abuse and co-occurring borderline personality disorder and substance abuse. And I, um, and then I moved into my own private practice and people just started coming into my practice and, and, and the sex stuff just started showing up, mm -hmm. right? Poly clients started showing up, clients interested in kink started showing up, a large quantity of queer clients started showing up. And, um, and so I, and then I had to educate myself and then I had a kind of a parallel process with my clients of 
you know, going through my own journey of perimenopause and figuring out what I wanted to be doing in my own personal sexual life. Um, and that also caused me to want to do more research and learn more and then become more of a resource um, for other people. And then I realized that I really, really enjoyed doing work around sex. I really enjoyed talking to people about things that they had never talked about before and being a safe space and sort of an exciting charge space for them to feel like they could talk about things that they previously didn't feel like they could talk about or that they've maybe been to other therapists and still felt like this is this one area that they couldn't talk about. Um, and I identified with that because my own relationship to talking about my sexuality was very, um, was very, uh, well, let's just say, um, timid for a really long time. And, um, I wanted to provide an avenue and an environment where we could just be curious about what it was. Plus I've been, um, embodiment had been such an embodied pleasure had been a huge part of my life. I was a dancer. I was a yoga teacher. You know, I've studied body work. I've been doing embodied mindfulness practices since I was like 19 years old. And so to move that into the sexual realm just made sense on some level. Um, and then to, in, to coming already from a sort of mindful embodied place as my framework in therapy, um, it felt like that was those were two things that really would benefit from being combined and that clients would really benefit from having that opportunity to talk about sexuality from a place of embodiment. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to find a training program that is really holistic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's IC, the Institute for Sexuality, Education, and Enlightenment, um, run by Roz DeShavo. And um, I finishing up my classes there and also teaching there right now. Um, and it just, that felt a little bit like coming home, um, yeah. to go to a place where people talk about sex from a holistic and embodied place and are really rigorous about the way that they study, um, sex therapy and simultaneously are really serious about, um, embodiment and mindfulness and self care. So, um, so that's kind of how it happened. Like it just sort of showed up on my doorstep and then, I was like, I think I want to do this. This mm -hmm. is really fun and, um, and thrilling. And people have such gratitude and such relief when they can start to open up about sexuality in a place that they never felt like they could before. Totally. I found that when I first started my somatic sex educator training mm -hmm. and I yeah. would be sitting with friends and talking to them about what I was doing, um, it was it never... It never ceased to amaze me that there was this like deep hunger to have the conversation in just a normal yeah. way where it's not yeah. like we're not whispering about it. We're not, yeah. you know, I don't know, the, the self-consciousness around talking about sex and sexuality and preferences and pleasure is so yeah. pervasive. And I yeah. really love, and I'd love to talk a little bit about this, well, this parallel in in between us um regarding having a dance background and a movement yeah. background and taking a tremendous amount of pleasure in being physical yes and how that eventually translated into you know supporting people in their own 
presence of body, but then the talking about it, you know, because you mentioned your own timidity mm-hmm. initially about talking. So what yeah. for you was that support in moving from your body to your vocalization about the pleasure? Well, I think that some of my training in, um, in it being a body based psychotherapist really helped me mm-hmm. and also my own therapy. My, I, I was in therapy for 20, 25 years with the same therapist. Who, oh, wow. Um, I know it was pretty amazing. Um, who, although she wouldn't necessarily have identified herself as a body based psychotherapist, then she had a really strong yoga practice mm-hmm. and she came from a really strong attachment background. Um, and those two things, uh, the kind of strong attachment background that she came from um, was one that's inherently embodied because it's coming from this idea of, you know, the ex- embodied experience of the infant yeah. is what shapes our whole way of being in the world and feeling safe in the world. And so she modeled that for me. And I learned that through my therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I learned to speak the body. Um, I also just am one of those people who's really kinesthetic. Like one of the first things I said to her when I walked into her office, like in our very first session when I was 24 years old was I feel my emotions in the body. Mm. I'm a very somatic person. Mm -hmm. It's just who I am. You know, that's how my um, ability to understand myself evolved. And I, um, because of my own background, I tended to feel emotions as physical discomfort or, specific physical sensations rather than being able to put them into words. It was always, it was always the challenge for me. And still at times it's a challenge for me to translate physical sensation into understanding, no, I'm not like sick or like dying or something. Um, but I'm actually, I'm having a feeling right. And my Mm -hmm. body is telling me that. So I think part of it is also just the nature of who I am. Some people are more and less embodied in their emotional lives and I am extremely embodied in my emotional life. And that's an interesting... Did that answer the question? Totally. I think that um, it's something... It's really... It's a potent part of the conversation. And I don't want to say that they're, you know... To make it such a dualistic thing where, like, some people are just, quote-unquote, good at being in their body and connecting to sensation and other people are not good at it. There is something to our developmental access point did I freeze Mm -hmm. yeah you froze did you hear what I said I said I heard you say that it's not such a dual thing and Mm -hmm. then I lost you for a second okay so it's I don't want to create this framework where it's like some people are good at connecting to their body and other people are not good at connecting to their body because I think some of it I grew up dancing you know from the time I was three and I stuck with it which I think speaks to something innate in me that I can express myself here. I feel myself here. I'm tapping into something here. And also it's a skill that I honed and learned and cultivated over, you know, decades now. So to that point, I'm curious about, you know, I do believe that as, as, People in the support professions, we attract people that are going to draw on our skill set and also challenge mm-hmm. us. So how do you work with people who don't have as much fluency yeah. in their body? You know, sometimes um, 
it, it really varies. Sometimes they won't have it, and then I'll just open the door, and it'll come pouring out. Mm. Um, sometimes that is not the case, and so we work with different kinds of exercises of, like, what's it like for you to just rub your hands together, right? Or to feel the upholstery, you know, next to you on the couch, or, you know, to, like, squinch your toes in your feet. I'll do like simple embodied meditations where I guide them through sensation, like the kind of classic body scan yeah. I'll use, um, I'll use as a way of trying to wake up awareness of sensation. And sometimes that really works. And then sometimes it really doesn't, you mm-hmm. know? And so it's kind of a diagnostic process for me, not diagnostic as in like, Oh, we need to diagnose something bad about you right. and like figure out how to fix it, but more diagnostic in terms of like what are we dealing with. So I'll have some clients where and then, you know, I'll have like a list of words that people can use to describe sensory motor experience. I originally got one from um from Pat Ogden, but I lost that one, so I put one together. Um, but like the you know, most trauma um therapies have one of those, you know, like a list of like tingly, buzzy, full, fluid you know, any word that you could think of. And so those lists of vocabulary can be really helpful for people to start to find language for what it is they're feeling in their bodies. Um, and then, and a lot of it is stuff that I learned when I did my sensory motor training. I'm not fully certified in sensory motor, but I did the first half of the trauma training with Pat Ogden and um, Christina Dickinson like over a decade ago. Um, in Denver and I just learned a lot about resourcing and like how to start to access people's language of the body from them. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. And to also really model it myself, Mm -hmm. right. In session, like to talk about like what I'm feeling, not in a super self-disclosing way, but like to be like, okay, I feel like my chest feels really tight right now. Or like, I feel like I need to move, you know, and to ask about like, are you having any impulses to move right now? Just to try to get, help people um, build a new set of questions to ask themselves so that they can even start to think about it when it, because for a lot of people, it's not, it's just not available. And then I'll have clients where it's just really not available and we won't work that way. Yeah. Right. Because it's just not accessible to them. And to try to push them there just makes them feel crappy. Yeah. uh, It enhances that self-consciousness or feeling of being put on the spot. And there's also, you know, moving towards this, I'd love for you to give people a definition of kink and this um, invitation to connecting to our eroticism through different sensations and through our different faculties. It's not only like, oh, I, you know, it's not only one thing is what I'm learning and what I hope to share with the audience. So I love your definition and just to kind of wrap on it for a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if I have a good definition of kink, um, but I, I, which is funny, but um, you know, it's kink is sort of a synonym for BDSM and BDSM stands for, um, it's actually three sets of two. It's uh, (laughs) a, Bondage and discipline, dominance and submission, and sadism and masochism. And so what those do is they sort of run the gamut of um, different ways that you can play with erotic energy, generally with a partner. It's not generally. It's pretty much BDSM isn't that much of a solo practice. I mean, it can exist, but um, uh, where you're working with different realms of sensation, different realms of power play, right, and different realms of um, confinement 
Mm. I don't, I mean, I don't actually know that many people who are super into punishment and discipline, but then there are people who are super into that. And that's more of a, like some of it's more psychological and some of it's more sensation based, like bondage, sadism, masochism, things like that. We're talking about like being tied up in rope, having the experience of what that feels like, or maybe, um, you know, the fantasy people often have is like being handcuffed to a bed or something like that. Um, or there's, I mean, there's all kinds of people, people are geeky about kink. I'm just going to say like the kink geek Venn diagram has a large overlap, a very large overlap. Um, and also the kink gearhead, um, Venn diagram has, has, so that's kind of like a three way Venn diagram (laughs) that has a huge overlap in the middle. Um, then you get into like dominant submission and also I would say the discipline part, that's more psychological. Mm-hmm. That's more playing with the, um, the inherent role of power in any kind of relationship, but making it explicit and then using it as a place of, um, of play. Um, and we use the word play in the kink mm-hmm. and BDSM communities, right? Um, because, and I love the fact that we use the word play because play is actually a pretty sophisticated psychological and psychoanalytic term. Um, like uh, Donald Winnicott, who's one mm-hmm. of the pioneers of, um, a, of it, it's not called attachment theory when you talk about Winnicott, but it actually, he was a precursor to attachment theory. Um, and he talked a lot about the role of play in having a healthy, growing up and finding healthy, he wouldn't have used the word boundaries, but what we would call boundaries, but like learning what the, what the rules are, playing with the rules, playing with possibilities. Um, and it also has a lot to do with feeling confident, like children that yes. aren't confident and comfortable don't play yes. and they get rigid because they, they feel like they have to stay within certain parameters. Whereas play is an indicator of safety and confidence. Um, because it means that you can test the boundaries and see what happens and not be terrified of, of consequences that might be crushing. Um, and so, and the consequence could even be shame. Yes, exactly. That's right. And the consequence could be an emotional consequence. And that's a huge, huge, important point, right? It could be shame. It could be feeling like you're not going to be loved, right? It could be rejection. Um, it could be guilt. It could be. Yeah, it could be all of those things. It's not even so much about like physical um, punishment, although that could be what it is. Um, it's more about this sense that the self is going to be compromised um, by the, the sort of caregiving figure if you do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. That limits people's sense of play, right? That like, no, you're not loved. You're not a full person. You're not a valuable person. You've done something to destroy the bond between us, right? That's what keeps people from playing. Um, and so I like to think of all like sexual interaction and sensual interaction as play. Um, and I'm not unique in that, but I think, you know, it's the opportunity that we as adults have to play. Um, and, and it's also a way of creating intimacy, right? To push buttons, to test, to test boundaries, to test our own limits, to try new things. That's a way of building trust and intimacy with a partner. Simultaneously, you have to have that safety and trust to do that, whether you're doing like a whipping scene or mm-hmm. you're having, you know, penetrative, regular penetrative sex. And um, yeah, please finish. On. Yeah, ask me. I want to just bring up within this within this context, 
and everybody, if you're not already following Catherine, Stumptown Sex Therapy, <laughs> I love the way that you share and you've been, you. you speak a lot to, and in particular recently, I've noticed a lot of um, dialogue from you about feminism and submission, yeah. which I think is so yeah. powerful and really cool. Thank you. And I just want to name, um, I cannot remember the woman's name who introduced this, but the concept of existential kink. And oh, I don't know this concept. Oh my gosh, it's Catherine something. She's also a Catherine, but I think Catherine with a C. So you know, different. <laughs> There's um, this concept, existential kink, that I've talked about a couple of times on this podcast with different guests, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's too much to go into right now. But I think we'll sure. kind of explain it basically. I'll Google it. Yeah, and when you talk about feminism and submission, it's it's a continuation of a thread that's been yeah. going through some of these talks. Oh, cool. So I'd love to hear more on some this from you. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a stereotype, but it's kind of a stereotype for a reason, right? Yeah. This idea of like, you know, fem- like power femme in the boardroom and like submissive in the bedroom. Um, but for me, what we're really talking about is the opportunity to have a full range of experiences. And a lot of times, there's a lot of messaging within feminist circles that we have to be um, strong and assertive and in control all the time, yeah. right? And that's at your job, and you have to have this really high-powered job, or at least you have to have a full-time job. And then you also need to be – it's the, like, women who have it all thing, right? Yeah. Like you know, you, and then you have to like come home and cook and then you're running the household and you're doing all of these things. And, you know, there's been some articles recently about the invisible emotional labor that like by and large cis women continue to do in most heterosexual relationships where they're kind of running the household insofar as they're keeping track of like who needs to be where, when, and what needs to be cooked and what's in the refrigerator and what do we need to do to prepare for the holiday? And all that kind of stuff. So there's this sense of not being able to let go of control, right? Um, and of not being allowed to ever need help yeah. on some level. And so um, when we question that, right, and when we look at some of our desire, uh, some of our desires, a lot of women who live those lives, and I'm specifically talking mostly about about cis women yeah. here. Um, uh, but not necessarily just heterosexual, like at all. This happens with queer women a lot. Um, there is this desire to have a more fully developed sense of self. And a lot of people would talk about this as the feminine. That's not a language that I use. Mm -hmm. I understand what people are talking about. And if somebody wanted to use that language, they could, but I'm not, that's just not my, it's just not my language, but to embody that part of ourselves, which is more, um, more passive maybe, or more, uh, more submissive, more, uh, showing allegiance who follows more rather than leading right who surrenders rather than dominating or controlling um and to do this in an emotional way and in a um and in a sexual way and in a sensual way because the piece i didn't that i didn't fully emphasize um when we were defining bdsm is that one of the things that it really 
that it really focuses on. And one of the things that I love about it is that it kind of explodes the concept of sexuality in a lot of ways because so much of the play is deeply intense and deeply sensual, but not necessarily genital or orgasm focused at all. And it's a lot about giving and receiving different kinds of sensation, which may or may not be what people consider to be pleasurable, right? It also explodes questions of pleasure and pain. And, uh, and, and invites us to explore what it is to just have intense sensation of different kinds or not even intense sensation, right? Some people want really gentle sensation, but what is it to experience pleasure through you know, the whole organ of our skin as mm-hmm. opposed to just focusing on, you know, the, on the, the bits that, they, that everybody get, that, you know, get bleeped out. Um, in any case, going, right, going back to the submission piece. Um, so for a lot of people, there's this idea that being submissive is sort of inherently giving into some patriarchal idea. Um, on the other hand, if we're going, we're coming from a like feminist perspective that says that being a woman, um, any kind of woman, woman with an X, uh, uh, doesn't have to correspond to any particular kind of way of being, right, in order to be feminist and to be um, asserting the rights of women, then that means that we get to be the full experience, right? We don't have to negate whatever the traditional quote-unquote feminine qualities are. In fact, we can enjoy and embrace them. Um, And that is also within our relationships. And so um, we can have relationships where we voluntarily submit or surrender mm-hmm. or play a, um, play a more, I don't really like the word passive here, but I don't really have a better one. Um, I would say more of like a following role rather than a leading role. Yeah. Um, that we can have that and that that can actually be an expression of our feminism because we're asserting what it is that we want and desire. And that's, I mean, it's pretty edgy for a lot of people, yeah. right? And and it's something that I think requires a tremendous amount of relational trust, right? Like, I definitely see people who are new to the kink BDSM leather community in, um, in, in, in who get really, really enthusiastic about playing in a submissive way really, really fast. And there's a term for it, actually, which is sub-frenzy. <laughs> um, right. Uh, where, yeah, you know, I totally you, get that. I am, yeah. Right. There's this, it's like, oh my God, this is available to me. I want it right now. Oh my God. And all the time and like kind of lose your bearings. Right. And people lose themselves in it. And it's often, it often comes with younger folks or with people who've been, or with people who have been just really never felt cared for. Right. Because there's, there's another dynamic within the, for me, dominant submissive relationships or master slave relationships. And we can have a long conversation about how we feel about the word slave. And I have all kinds of opinions about it, but we're not going to do that right now. Um, right. Or like daddy girl relationships or like, you know, and I'm gendering all of them like in a hetero way right now, but, um, they're not, um, necessarily like that. And also like, sir, you know, sir boy relationships that could be too, uh, that could be two non-binary folks like you know people adopt whatever gender actually makes sense for them within their terminology regardless of what gender they're born into or yeah. assigned at birth um, so while the terminology is gendered it doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are engaging in it are gendered the way that the language is gendered um, 
those relationships can have a really, really wide array of qualities. Um, In my relationships that I seek like that, I seek a high degree of caregiving. Um, I seek partners that want to care for me, that want to protect me, that want to provide for me. Um, and then I provide service and devotion in return. Um, and that is sort of touching, that touches on the attachment piece that I know you wanted to get to, which is that there's a way of healing early attachment mm-hmm. through this stuff that's incredibly potent, right? Because we're making the power dynamics really explicit, right? We're powerless as infants. We're powerless as tiny children. That's our first experience is one of powerlessness and dependency, Right. And we what we literally our systems literally wire up in terms of what we think relationship is going to be and what we can have and what love means and how safe we can be in the world based on those early experiences. Right. There's tons of actual like fundamental medical scientific research about this. Yes. Um, And so we can have potentially really reparative experiences in um, power exchange relationships if we're really careful about them, right? And so I I explicitly looked for one because I had issues to heal around my parenting and around feeling safe in the world and loved in the world. And I have been fortunate enough to find a partner who wants all the, like pretty much the exact same things that I do, but from the opposite, you know, from the opposite side of the slash. We talk about being on the right or the left side of the slash. Mm. Um, and so... You know, so I have somebody who's on the left side of the slash who wants to be nurturing, who wants to be caring, who wants to be really generous and provide for me in all kinds of ways, who wants to, and who also wants to, like, doesn't want to have any control at all over areas that he doesn't think make sense for him to control because they don't, because they're mine autonomously, like my career and my parenting and some of, you know, some of the, and like my financial decisions. Right. Other people choose to totally give themselves over in every way. And that can work really well. And it can also be a disaster. Other people can choose to have, you know, their dominant, submissive or whatever level, you know, they'll want to call it handler pet relationship be, you know, just a play thing. Um, And people work with it on different psychological levels. Um, But one of the things I'm most interested in personally and with my clients and with people that I consult with, you know, and coach around figuring out what they want to do with their kink and what their kink identity is and how to um, how to make use of it best is to figure out how to work with their attachment pieces and their wounding in such a way that they can potentially have reparative experiences through relationship. Right. And to me, it's just allowing yourself to go to the real edge of yeah. those experiences, because I, I believe most yeah. of us are going through these patterns anyway. Like we're attracting the relationship 100%. dynamics that are reflecting our attachment challenges. And right. within the BDSM community, within kink play, yeah. You know, I think it was I think it was actually our mutual friend Kimberly Johnson who said this yeah. on one of her IGTVs. Like within that community, the level of communication is so strong, the boundaries are yeah. so clear, there is structure, and that doesn't mean that it's, you know, that doesn't mean you don't have to be present and pay attention. Yeah, you sure do. But th- just that there is a lot more structure and integrity yeah. within these um within these realms of play than I think a lot of people really understand. 
Yeah, and I think that that's a really critical piece is that um, people generally in like kink BDSM leather communities, um, there's a real um, emphasis on on negotiating um, and uh, everything up front. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, talking about everything ahead of time. It's it's not it's not this sort of romantic, organic thing that let's just see what happens (laughs) like let's see what happens no it's like what are you looking for like on the first date you're like well maybe not the first date like maybe the first date you just you know me um but you also probably talk about like what kind of play do you like like do you like to be you know you definitely want to know if you're a you know more a more on the dominant submissive or switchy side switchy means that you play both that you'd like to play both sides of the coin um and, you know, you start talking about what kinds of play you're into because the thing is if somebody's really into like, um, like if somebody's really into rope and electrical play and, and that person they're dating or that they want to date doesn't want to do those things, then that's pretty much a deal breaker because yeah. the kind of play is such a foundation, right? And it's so different from what people do in sort of day-to-day dating. Like, you, can you imagine like if on the second date you'd be like, well, I'm really into you know, um, rough nipple play, and um, I don't really like PIV sex that much, but I really prefer that you use a vibrator on me, like, and then, like, can you imagine having that conversation with, like, a partner of any other gender, like, um, of any gender, like, about, like, so this is explicitly, like, and, like, that is so unconventional, but within the kink and leather communities, and in some sex-positive communities in general, you just get it right out there. Right. Yeah. Because you acknowledge that this is a really big part of relationship and we need to know if we like the same stuff or if there's possibility that we might like the same stuff. And I think that there's more the challenge, uh, you know, where where I'm coming from and typically who I'm working with is people who have not ever had the opportunity, the invitation, the encouragement to state clearly what they like. Oh my gosh. And they don't know. I mean, for my clients, like Mike, a lot of my clients don't know. They're like, I know I was working with a client just this week. Um, and, uh, they're having the challenge that I imagine you've probably encountered before where the most of their life they had sex drunk. Yes, and, um, for sure. Cause there's so many people with or without substance abuse problems who use substances to overcome their inhibitions around sexuality. Mm-hmm. And so they are now, trying to learn how to have sex sober right and they don't know what they like all they know now is what they don't like so the question is like how are they going to talk to their partner about like well I know we don't I don't like what we're doing but I don't have any suggestions (laughs) yeah but like I don't know what fills in the blank and there's something so tender in that like another another scenario is and I relate to this a lot being hypersexual like There's just a lot of sex happening and that is in and of itself a reflection of an attachment pattern. Yes. And now when I'm, I'm wanting to shift that and thank you for clarifying, it can be, um, part of an attachment pattern. Now that I am conscious of this and I want to shift it, I've identified myself as very sexual and liking sex, but I'm actually repulsed when I bring consciousness to it or like, you know, there's this kind of rejection of of the sex as part of the intimacy, but not Mm -hmm. knowing how to be intimate without it. 
Right. Yeah. And, and it's also, you used a term that I just want to clarify because it took me a minute, not in this conversation, but previously, PIV meaning penis and vagina sex. Yes. Penis and vagina sex. So, and I, I really, I'm on like a mission. I'm, it's not my own mission, but I'm on a mission. And I did a post on this recently that maybe mm-hmm. you read yeah. of like how much people just, when they say having sex, they mean penis and vagina sex. Totally. Um, or at least penetrative sex. And that, that I, I just am on a mission to change that because that's not the only way to have sex. And it, it, it just negates and devalues other forms of sexual encounter and it also, um, it just, it's so heteronormative yeah. in this way that's just, and it's so focused on like a certain kind of, a certain kind of, of pleasure. And I, so I just like to be as specific about that as I can. Um, and it's so interesting, it's, like with our, with our daily interaction, like culturally sanctioned daily interactions, the genitals are in no way a part of it whatsoever. Right. And then somehow we've constructed this understanding of sex as exclusively genitals. And it's like, what the hell? Like, of course there's dissonance. Right. And then everything else is quote unquote foreplay. Yeah. Right. It's not foreplay. It's sex. Yeah. That's sex too. Foreplay is sex. It is. Anyway, anything that's going to cause and create arousal and intimacy is sex. That's anyway, that's my point of view. And I love that you're a part of this mission because it's so essential. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I guess one thing I didn't really talk mm-hmm. about in terms of like kink BDSM is that um, there is also, in, in terms of the focus on negotiation, there's also a very heavy focus on consent. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and that uh, it, there's actually a lot of sort of modeling around how to work with consent within the kink BDSM leather communities um, and the whole process of negotiation um, and the emphasis on negotiation. And so I think that, that that's one of the things I know Kimberly and I have talked about a lot that like that's something that people in non-kink communities could really take from the kink community, yes. right? Is like how to have these upfront conversations about what it is that you would and would not be willing to do so that you're not like in the heat of the moment with your partner being like, can I do this thing to you or starting to do this thing to them and suddenly find out that like, you know, they have like a trigger around their elbow being licked and then, right. And then like have them elbow you in the face and be like, oh my God, what happened? Right. Right. Like optimally within the kink and BDSM and leather communities, like that kind of stuff is laid out. Like, you know, what, what areas of your body can I touch? What areas of your body can I not touch? Like, what kind of language can I use with you? Like, so you know what kind of dirty talk is going to work and what kind of dirty talk is not. And then you continue, optimally, you continue to negotiate that all, you know, moving forward so that it can evolve. Um, but there aren't these sort of ambush, as many of yeah. these sort of like ambush moments that people always talk about and have in sex of like, oh, fuck, I thought that, you know, I thought that my partner would really like this, like, they seemed really into this, and then I tried it, and they were like, bleh, and they pushed me away, and I felt so humiliated, and, you know, there's so much emotional vulnerability and rejection that can happen on both sides um, of assuming it's two people having sex together, Um, and so that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the sort of kink BDSM leather communities is the modeling of just talking about everything um, up front 
and getting consent and then being free to play and not have to worry about it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's something to, you know, I'm, I'm listening to all of this and thinking it's a conversation I have with myself and with other people, like specifically related to my own experience of giving birth, which I want to talk to you about that in a minute. But, you know, I studied birth and was a birth worker for like four years before I got pregnant and gave birth. Uh And that was like, I believe a huge part of why my experience was empowering and just was what it was. And when it comes to this kind of expansion of our sexual identity and experience, Mm -hmm. there's so much groundwork, um, you know, just experiencing the full range of sensation in our body, coming to understand how emotions live in our Mm -hmm. body, in our tissues, in certain physical positions, right? Like what that kind of physical, um, emotional relationship is, I think is so crucial. And unfortunately it's not something that our young people are taught. And I'm so, I'm so honored to talk to you for lots of reasons, but in particular because you are a mother and you've shared, you know, there's been a few shares that you've made about, um, educating young people about sex and this kind Mm -hmm. of intuitive understanding that we have as young people that can so quickly be shut down and kind of, Mm -hmm. it can just be squelched so easily. So I'd love to hear you talk about, um, the process of being a sex therapist, uh, you know, a sexual being and a mom and an educator for a young person. Um, you know, it's one of those things I'm just sort of feeling my way through intuitively and that I have to, I really just try to follow my daughter's lead in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, she's a pretty wise person, um, and she's got pretty good, she's got pretty good boundaries. Um, and so a lot of it is just figuring out like what's age appropriate for her and what do I think is appropriate for her to know that she has or has not learned. Like I have this huge, I actually have like a success story to share She's yeah. in, um, my daughter's in seventh grade, so she's getting some sex ed, and her sex ed at her school is not very good. Um, it's not atrocious, but it's, 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 it's not very good. Um, and uh, I think it was about four weeks ago, or five weeks ago, um, a friend of mine uh, was at a, sh- a sale where uh, I've been wanting earrings in the shape of the clitoris because it's actually a really beautiful shape, right? The full clitoris. It looks kind of like uh, an orchid. I just and, bought a um, necklace. Yes, I saw you got that awesome necklace. That's gorgeous. And they have so, earrings, so maybe we yeah. can arrange, like, I'll purchase them and send them your way. But my mom so saw did. the necklace and she's like, is yeah. that a hornet? And I told her what it was, and she, like, laughed and was, like, a little bit embarrassed, but it was just really funny. Like, yeah, this natural shape. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, like, sea creature and floral, and, like, it's just a really pretty shape. So, anyway, I got some that are, like, they're made out of plastic. They're um, they're kind of, like, shrink made out of, like, that... um, you know, shrink plastic oh, yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and I like them. I mean, I would like some fancier ones too. Um, and I, I was, t- I was excited about them when I, when I found out that this friend of mine was buying them for me and I came downstairs and I was talking to my daughter and my husband and I was like, Oh my God, I got clitoris earrings. I'm so excited. And Rose was like, what? And I was like, Rose, do you know what the clitoris is? My daughter's name is Rose. 
And I, and she was like, um, well, I think maybe you told me. And I was like, well, it's this organ in the body. And like, you've probably felt it that there's like a particularly sensitive spot, you know, in your vulva where, and actually that spot is only part of it. It mm -hmm. actually extends down into the whole, um, underneath the vulva and into all these different ways, depending on different, you know, what your personal anatomy is. And it's really cool because it's the only organ in any body that's just for pleasure. Right. And like, it's an analog for the glands of the penis that, um, that happen on, that happens on bodies with penises, but bodies with vulvas have this thing that's just for pleasure. And, you know, she kind of like, she does this thing where she sort of takes in and then I can tell she's had enough yeah. <laughs> um, of the information. Um, and I'm like, am I being too much sex therapist, mom? And she'll be like, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, and, um, and she, but she was like, wow, that's really cool that mm. like, there's this organ that's just for pleasure. She thought that was really cool. And then she went back to school this week and they did female reproductive anatomy and um, and she was like, you know, my teacher tried to like be good and talk about how people who are like born female, like not, she's, she's like the trans police. <laughs> my daughter is totally like the trans and gender non-binary police. She's so, she's such an ally. Um, and she was like, I was like, did you talk about the clitoris? And she was like, yes. And she was like, I was the only one who knew what it was. And I was like, oh my God, my timing was perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> that is a success. And I love, I, know. I mean, first and foremost, this like awareness you know I love that you said I'm watching her and I can see kind of when she's had enough yeah but also this uh acknowledgement that she is ready yeah. for a lot of this information and I feel yeah. super grateful you know my mom is not was not a sex therapist but always answered every question that I ever had starting from a very young age yeah. And it was never a taboo or shameful thing. And I felt like really empowered to choose what I yeah. expressed and shared with people. You know, there's the, the normal, I think normal, hormonally driven timidity and self-consciousness and all of that. Yeah. But it was, it was just not something that I felt I needed to silence or learn about in secret. And that was extremely yeah. empowering. I think that's the most yeah. important thing. Yeah, and I, like, the things that I really want to emphasize, because they're often not emphasized in conventional sex therapy, even here, not sex, not sex therapy, sex ed, like, in the schools, especially, like, even here in Portland, is that, like, consent and pleasure are really, really important, mm -hmm. right? That, like, sex is about reproduction, but it's also about pleasure and intimacy and relationship, and it's also about mutual respect and consent and that you know if, if there's one thing that I can try to imbue in my daughter that's what I want to do is to like empower her to have autonomy over her sexual experiences starting really early yeah right because what I see so much with young girls even now um and especially like when I was growing up was just the sense of total powerlessness of like well okay if a guy wants to have sex with you then you have the opportunity and you should take it, right? Or mm. if a guy wants you to, like, perform some kind of sex act on him, then you don't really have a choice. Um, and I don't want her to – or you have the choice to, like, then not be in relationship, right? Um, and that I, I just really want her to not feel that kind of trappedness, you know? Um, and Yeah, that's a huge part of the feminism 
and submission conversation, I think, because there's still very much for cis women and and likely beyond that, but um, I think cis women catch 22 when it comes to sex. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. There's no allowance for a full spectrum or even like choice in the matter. I don't want to have sex with you. I want to have sex with this other person. Right. Or I don't want to have PIV sex, but I do want you to like play with my boobs and like, maybe I'll touch your penis or like, maybe I'll touch your Like if you're, you know, with another woman, like maybe I'll touch your vulva or like we could both do this, like just to open up. And so I feel like that's one of the things that I also really want to, like that I really want to share with my daughter. And another like mission that I'm on that I'm very much not alone in is the like, let's deconstruct the whole concept of virginity. Like the whole concept of virginity is so is so crazy like to me the whole idea that like your first PIV sex is your first sexual experience is just it's just ludicrous right and it's also just not true like that's not how it works but it it winds up putting so much pressure on that act and it winds up focusing on that act so much and then it it really it decenters the pleasure of people who don't have penises or people who are uncomfortable with their penises um and it um it just it, it creates this like singular door to like this is when you're sexually active and this is when you're not which is just not absurd to be that way right it's just not it doesn't have to be that way and it puts all this pressure on it in this way that also just seems really useless um and so that's another piece that I really wanted to try to introduce for my daughter um but again I'm always trying to be really mindful of what is comfortable for her and what is yeah. not. And there are some areas where she'll want to know, she'll ask questions and I'll be like, you're not old enough to know that yet. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't appropriate information for you. Like, you know, cause I teach in the leather community and she really wants to know what leather is. Right. And for just really brief nutshell for people who don't know, leather is a particular area of the BDSM King community that emerges as, as particularly out of, um, gay male communities mm-hmm. starting in World War II. Um, and it has tradi- it was traditionally gay male, but it has expanded and to a much broader area um, array of genders and um, and but it's generally people who play pretty hard and who have a identity of being like their sexual outlaw um, self is a big part of their identity mm-hmm. and um and also they're often involved in fairly intense or seeking to be involved in fairly intense um power exchange relationships that's a big and power exchange is just a umbrella term for what you might think of as like dominant submissive power exchange sort of the umbrella term for any of those um so i go and teach at leather conferences and she wants to know you know and like i have a leather vest that was gifted to me and she wants to know what it means and you know, I, I'm not, I don't think she's ready to know a lot of that. Right. But I can give her little pieces. Like at this point I've been like, well, does it help you to know that it comes out of like gay male history? And she'll be like, yeah, that is helpful. You know? And like, I'll give her little bits, but I'm not going to talk to her about the intricacies of the leather community because she's 12 and a half. And like some, like really, I was like, when you're 14, I'll tell you more. And then when you're older, if you want to know, you know, but some of the stuff like she doesn't, not everybody, like, lots of grown-ups don't want to know. Yeah. You know, they're, and, and that's a consent piece, too, is, like, share, like, and this is a piece that my D-type and I talk about a lot, is that, like, 
there is a desire among kinky folk sometimes to just like rub our kink in other people's faces. But the thing is, that's not consensual. Mm. They didn't consent to like being around that and it may make them uncomfortable. Right. And it is outside of the norm. And so, um, it's not so much that I'm interested in like being normal all the time. That's definitely not an interest of mine. Um, but at the same time, like I don't want to have, I don't want to have a sexualized interaction with someone that they didn't consent to being around. That's not appropriate. Right. Right. It's coercive and it's not, you know, it's not about whether I'm embarrassed or whether I think what I'm doing is right or wrong. It's just, I don't, like if I would feel the same way about somebody who was doing something really like vanilla and heteronormative, like I don't want to watch people fucking like in the restaurant. Yeah. That's not appropriate. I didn't go there for that. Like, and having designated space is part of the boundary is part of like, yeah. And, and gives people the, the essential experience. It is consent, but just to, explain that a little bit more not that I think people need it but you know part of consent is I'm I'm in this now I'm stepping forward to see and engage up to a point and then actually I've had enough I'm done yeah I choose to step away and there's a space for me to go where I don't have to be a part of this yeah exactly the my favorite part of the consent dialogue it's yes no maybe I changed my mind Yes, I know. I love I changed my mind. Oh my gosh. I love like yeah, I totally agree with you. The fluidity, yeah. right? Cuz people are always people are often looking for really clear rigid answers around like what do you want? What do you, it's like I don't know. Yeah. Like the power of the phrase I don't know and the possibility embedded in the phrase I don't know. You know, at the same time as it's like I don't know is a no until it's a yes, but it's also a maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. There's so much there. Um, and trying to give my clients permission to use that and sit in there. I don't know. Right. Like referring back to what we were talking about earlier with clients who don't who don't know what they want sexually. Well, OK, that's actually exciting. Yeah, like you totally. don't know. Like now we can find out. And let's find some safety and comfort in the I don't know. Yeah. So that there's a real, you know, um, just the clarity to find the edges and feel them where they are and get accustomed to that, to curiosity. I think curiosity is really overwhelming for a lot of people because of the rigidity in which our stru- our society is structured, um, particularly sexuality. You know, there's a yeah. lot of pushback against, um, there's like this, this, real craving for a label alongside this rejection, total rejection of labels that I find fascinating. Um, And to that point, something that I'd like to end with, just because I want to respect your time, but I want to touch on this because it's it's exciting to me. There was um, a post you made of, what is the wording? Not all monogamy is conscious. Yeah. And for for those people who don't know, polyamory is also often referred to as conscious non-monogamy, which yeah. I love. I lo- that kind of sort of was a game changer for me psychologically mm-hmm. in my understanding and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this. Like not all monogamy is conscious. 
Yeah, I mean, in fact, a lot of monogamy is unconscious, and that's what I, when I work with clients who are talking about opening up their marriages or opening up their relationships, or, um, and who not, who haven't necessarily decided whether to do that or not, right, um, but who are thinking about the possibility, a lot of what we wind up doing is talking about the kinds of questions that you need to have um, uh explored in order to embark on non-monogamy in a successful way Mm -hmm. and often those are questions that they have never asked themselves as a monogamous couple so um what does intimacy look like for us how much privacy do we get to have right how much autonomy do we get to have like what um how much of our sexuality belongs to one another like Mm -hmm. is it okay to have an autonomous sexual life like whether that includes masturbation, fantasy, pornography, um, uh, flirt, what kinds of flirtation and, lem- and levels of flirtation or interaction or even intimacy of any kind with other people who are in a gender or configuration where they could be a potential lover, right? Um, uh, what are our expectations of each other in terms of meeting each other's emotional needs? What are our expectations of each other in terms of meeting each other's sexual needs? Um, I mean, there's an infinite number of questions, yeah. but those are the ones that, that come up the most often where my you know couples that have been in monogamous relationships for a really long time or even for a brief period of time are like, we've never talked about that. It never occurred to us to talk about that. Or like, or again, like, what is sex about for me? Like, yeah. what is sex about for us? What kinds of acts do we like to engage in in our sex? What kinds of, you know, physical play do we want? How do we want to play with power in this? Like, they're all questions that people who are in monogamous relationships often don't engage in because they go into their, there's this, you know, people talk about as the relationship escalator, but and there's all kinds of um, ways of talking about it, but the sense that, you know, the goal in life is to find one's monogamous partner, mm. and then you're done. But the right. thing is, what are you done with and what does it mean to get there and what what are the assumptions that each person has about what that relationship is going to be and do and fulfill and so i it's so rarely discussed so um that's why i'm kind of really really excited about investigating this whole question of like how can monogamy be more conscious and how can the things that we talk about in kink and BDSM or in, you know, talking about opening relationships in polyamory, how can they inform monogamous relationships, right? And enhance monogamous relationships because I just know, I mean, and I'm sure you do too. I'm sure anybody listening would know or maybe be in a couple where you never talked about these things. You Mm -hmm. never talked about like, what do we want our sex life to be? How much emotional privacy do I, do we want to have from each other? Like I remember when I got married um, and I had the intention of a long-term like indefinite monogamous marriage at the time, I was not interested in an open relationship at all. I remember like being so happy that my dreams were private because Mm -hmm. I felt like I had one place of privacy left right that like we didn't share our unconscious and therefore I could have some area of privacy it was pretty intense right it's really intense and that speaks to like the extent of merger that I sort of imagined we were supposed to have yeah 
Um, and and I think that's of, normal, like to imagine yeah. if in your mind it's like one person forever. To right. me, it makes sense that the continuation of that thought or agreement would be like the the extreme depth of merging because right. you would you would need that, but then that's also not like. Right. I don't think that's healthy. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I have a couple. I have a woman I'm working with right now, and she's in the process of a divorce. Um, but she was married to a guy that would read her journals. Oh wow. Yeah. And she knew it wasn't okay, but he didn't get it. Mm. So her most private thought, she had no private space for, but she was a heavy journaler, and that's like oh. where she has her thoughts, and that she had no privacy at all. Right. And so those kinds of things, right. Those kinds of things of like, what do I get to still have as an individual? Right. And then what Mm -hmm. do we want to share consciously, deliberately as a couple? Right. Um, and to just ask all those questions. So yeah, that's something I'm really, that's like a whole topic I'm super excited about right now. That's awesome. That's something I definitely no. want to have another conversation with you about and Groovy. just go Let's a lot it. deeper. That's really wonderful. Um, I'm so honored by your willingness to talk here and share. And At my absolute pleasure. Excited by the work super that you're doing. And I'm, I'm curious, I'll add your website, of course, to the show notes so people can see you and find you on social media. But just... Great. A quick question, do you do virtual sessions with people? Yeah, I do do virtual sessions with people. It's a little tricky because of my licensure and okay. um, and that sort of thing, but I do do virtual so I do virtual cons- if I, in the state where I'm states where I'm licensed, I can do therapy. Um, Got it. and I, I don't know if what I'm doing is technically legal honestly, but um, I do consulting sessions with people virtually in other locations. Great. Because yeah. I think you um, have so much to offer that. and, yeah. you know, you. the the audience for this podcast is widespread. So I just, I want to make sure that you yeah. are a resource that people know about. Yeah. And I loved, I loved, that's one of my favorites. I mean, I, I love doing intimacy consulting with people wherever they are. You know, I have people who are just like, our sex life is confused and we don't know what to do. Can you help us fix it? And I'm like, well, I don't know if I can help you fix it, but I can help certainly help you understand it better and like ask some questions that might be helpful. And I, I love doing that work. It's so, it's so thrilling. And I learned so much from it. That's wonderful. You're wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Stacy. This was delightful. Thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the Sacred Body Podcast. Please leave us a review if you have the time. Spread the word far and wide. Talk to you next time.